Volume One, Chapter Ten of Autobiography of a Seaman, by Thomas Cochrane. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. Cruise of the Palace. On my appointment to the palace, Lord Melville considerately gave me permission to cruise for a month off the Azores under Admiralty orders. The favour, the object of which was to give me an opportunity of trying my luck against the enemy independent of superior command was no doubt granted in consideration of the lengthened not to say malevolent punishment to which i had been condemned in the arab my orders were to join my ship at plymouth with a promise that my instructions should be forwarded in place of this and in disregard of lord melville's intention the admiralty orders were embargoed by the port admiral sir w young who had taken upon himself to recopy them and thus to convert them into orders issued under his authority the effect was to enable him to lay claim to the admiral's share of any prize money that we might make even though captured out of his jurisdiction which extended no further than the sound the mention of this circumstance requires brief comment in order to account for the result which followed perhaps the most lucid explanation that can be given will be an extract from a letter of Lord St. Vincent to the Admiralty when in command of the Channel Fleet. I do not know, says Lord St. Vincent, what I shall do if you feel a difficulty to give orders to dispatch such ships as you may judge necessary to place under my command. I have a notion that he, Admiral Young, wishes to have the power of issuing orders for their sailing in order to entitle him to share prize money. Brenton, Volume 2, page 249. Quote ends. From this extract from Lord St. Vincent, it is evident that if Admiral Young, according to the system then prevailing, had the power, as on his lordship's authority unquestionably appears, of paralysing the operations of a whole fleet on the question of sharing prize money, remonstrance on my part against the violation of Admiralty promises made by Lord Melville himself would have been disregarded. Nothing was therefore left but to submit. The first object was to equip the palace with all speed, and for this we were obliged to resort to impressment. So much had my do-nothing cruise in the Arab operated against me in the minds of the seamen. Having, however, succeeded in impressing some good men to whom the matter was explained, they turned with great alacrity to impress others, so that in a short time we had an excellent crew. This was the only time I ever found it necessary to impress men. As the cruise off the Western Islands, when arrived there, was restricted to a month, it was a matter of consideration how to turn such orders to the best account without infringing on the letter of my instructions. We therefore crossed the Bay of Biscay, and having run to the westward of Cape Finisterra, worked up towards the Azores, so as to fall in with any Spanish vessels which might be bound from the Spanish West Indies to Cadiz. Scarcely had we altered our course when, on the 6th of February, we fell in with and captured a large ship, the Carolina, bound from Havana to Cadiz, and laden with a valuable cargo. After taking out the crew, we dispatched her to Plymouth. Having learned from the prisoners that the captured ship was part of a convoy bound from the Havana to Spain, we proceeded on our course, and on the 13th captured a second vessel, which was still more valuable, containing, in addition to the usual cargo, some diamonds and ingots of gold and silver 
this vessel was sent to plymouth as before on the fifteenth we fell in with another la fortuna which proved the richest of all as besides her cargo she had on board a large quantity of dollars which we shifted into the palace and sent the ship to england on the sixteenth we captured a fine spanish letter of mark with more dollars on board but as a heavy sea then running prevented us from taking them on board the palace these were therefore dispatched with her to plymouth whilst securing the latter vessel we observed at sunset an english privateer take possession of a large ship on seeing us evidently knowing that we were an english man of war and therefore entitled to share in her capture the privateer crowded all sail and made off with her prize in company unluckily for this calculation the prize was subsequently taken by a french squadron when it turned out that the captured vessel the preciosa was the richest of the whole spanish convoy having in addition to her cargo no less than a million dollars on board strangely enough the privateer belonged to my agent mr todd from whom i afterwards learned the value of the vessel which his captain's mistaken greed had sacrificed the sensation created on the arrival of the prizes at plymouth was immense as the following curious extracts from a local paper will show Quote, february twenty fourth came in the caroline from havana with sugar and logwood captured off the coast of spain by the palace captain lord cochrane the palace was in pursuit of another with a very valuable cargo when the caroline left his lordship sent word to plymouth that if ever it was in his power he would fulfil his public advertisement stuck up here for entering seamen of filling their pockets with spanish pewter and cobs nicknames given by seamen to ingots and dollars march the seventh came in a rich spanish prize with jewels gold silver ingots and a valuable cargo taken by the palace captain lord cochrane another spanish ship the fortuna from veracruz had been taken by the palace laden with mahogany and logwood she had four hundred and thirty two thousand dollars on board but has not yet arrived march twenty third came in a most beautiful spanish letter of mark of fourteen guns said to be a very rich and valuable prize to the palace captain lord cochrane Quote ends. a still greater sensation was excited by the arrival of the palace herself with three large golden candlesticks each about five feet high placed upon the mastheads the history of these is not a little curious they had been presented by the good people of mexico together with other valuable plate to some celebrated church in spain the name of whose patron saint i forget and had been shipped on board one of the most seaworthy vessels their ultimate destination was however less propitious it was my wish to possess them and with this view an arrangement had been made with the officers and crew of the palace on presenting the candlesticks at the custom house the authorities refused to permit them to pass without paying the full duty which amounted to a heavier sum than i was willing to disperse consequently although of exquisite workmanship they were broken in pieces and thus suffered to pass as old gold the following incident relating to the capture of one of the vessels had escaped my recollection till pointed out in the naval chronicle for eighteen o five it is substantially correct Quote begins lord cochrane in his late cruise off the coasts of spain and portugal fell in with and took la fortuna a spanish ship bound to coruna 
and richly laden with gold and silver to the amount of four hundred and fifty thousand dollars a hundred and thirty two thousand pounds and about the same sum in valuable goods and merchandise when the spanish captain and his supercargo came on board the palace they appeared much dejected as their private property on board amounted to the value of thirty thousand dollars each the captain said he had lost in the war of seventeen seventy nine a similar fortune having then been taken by a british cruiser so that now as then he had to begin the world anew lord cochrane feeling for the dejected condition of the spaniards consulted his officers as to their willingness to give them back five thousand dollars each in specie this being immediately agreed to his lordship ordered the boatswain to pipe all hands and addressing the men to the like purpose the gallant fellow sang out ay ay my lord with all our hearts and gave the unfortunate spaniards three cheers Quote ends. another curious circumstance must not be passed over in one of the captured vessels was a number of bales marked invendables making sure of some rich prize we opened the bales which to our chagrin consisted of pope's bulls dispensations for eating meat on fridays and indulgences for peccadilloes of all kinds with the price affixed they had evidently formed a venture from spain to the mexican sin market but the supply exceeding the demand had been reconsigned to the manufacturers we consigned them to the waves on our way home we were very near losing our suddenly acquired wealth and the frigate too whilst between the azores and portugal one of those hazes common in semi-tropical climates had for some time prevailed on the surface of the sea the mastheads of the ship being above the haze with a clear sky one day the lookout reported three large ships steering for us and on going aloft i made them out to be line-of-battle ships in chase of the palace as they did not show any colours it was impossible to ascertain their national character but from the equality of the fore and main topgallant masts there was little doubt they were french the course of the frigate was immediately altered and the weather changing it began to blow hard with a heavy sea the palace was cranked to such a degree that the lee main deck guns though housed were under water and even the lee quarter deck carronades were at times emerged as the strange ships were coming up with us hand over hand the necessity of carrying more sail became indispensable notwithstanding the immersion of the hull to do this with safety was the question however i ordered all the hawsers in the ship to be got up to the mastheads and hove taut the masts being thus secured every possible stitch of sail was set the frigate plunging forecastle under as was also the case with our pursuers which could not fire a gun though as the haze cleared away we saw them repeatedly flashing the priming after some time the line of battleships came up with us one keeping on our lee beam another to windward each within half a mile whilst the third was a little more distant seeing it impossible to escape by superior sailing it appeared practicable to try a manoeuvre which might be successful if the masts would stand having as stated secured these by every available rope in the frigate the order was given to prepare to clue up and haul down every sail at the same instant the manoeuvre being executed with great precision and the helm being put harder weather so as to wear the ship as speedily as possible the palace thus suddenly brought up shook from stem to stern in crossing the trough of the sea 
as our pursuers were unprepared for this manoeuvre still less to counteract it they shot past at full speed and ran on several miles before they could shorten sail or trim on the opposite tack indeed under the heavy gale that was now blowing even this was no easy matter without endangering their own masts there was no time for consideration on our part so having rapidly sheeted home we spread all sail on the opposite tack the horses being still fast to the masts we went away from our pursuers at the rate of thirteen knots and upwards so that a considerable distance was soon interposed between us and them and this was greatly increased ere they were in a condition to follow before they had fairly renewed the chase night was rapidly setting in and when quite dark we lowered a ballasted cask overboard with a lantern to induce them to believe that we had altered our course though we held on in the same direction during the whole night the trick was successful for as had been calculated the next morning to our great satisfaction we saw nothing of them and were all much relieved on finding our dollars and his majesty's ship once more in safety the expedient was a desperate one but so was the condition which induced us to resort to it of the proceeds of the above-mentioned captures all made within ten days sir william young on the strength of having recopied my orders from the admiralty claimed and received half my share of the captures no wonder that lord st vincent said of him that he wished to have the power of giving orders and so share prize money being then young and ardent my portion appeared inexhaustible what could i want with more the sum claimed and received by admiral young was not worth notice on our return to plymouth the country was on the eve of a general election and at the time appeared a fitting one to carry out my long-cherished scheme of getting into parliament the nearest borough in which there was a chance was honiton and accordingly i applied to the port admiral for leave of absence to contest that independent constituency the prize money procured it without scruple my opponent was a mr bradshaw who had the advantage of a previous canvas from the amount of prize money which was known to have fallen to my share that gentleman's popularity was for a moment in danger it being anticipated that i should spend my money sailor fashion so that it became unmistakably manifest that the seat in parliament would be at my service if my opponent were outbid to use the words of an independent elector during my canvass you need not ask me my lord who i votes for i always votes for mr most to the intense disgust of the majority of the electors i refused to bribe at all announcing my determination to stand on patriotic principles which in the electioneering parlance of those days meant no bribery to my astonishment however a considerable number of the respectable inhabitants voted in my favour and my agent assured me that a judicious application of no very considerable sum would beat my opponent out of the market this however being resolutely refused the majority voted in favour of his five pound notes and saved my friends of the admiralty court and other naval departments from an exhibition of misplaced zeal which as subsequently proved could only have ended in my parliamentary discomfiture to be beaten even at an election is one thing to turn a beating to account is another having had decisive proof as to the nature of honiton politics i made up my mind that the next time there was a vacancy in the borough the seat should be mine without bribery accordingly immediately after my defeat i sent the bellman round the town 
having first primed him with an appropriate speech, intimating that all who had voted for me might repair to my agent, J. Townsend, Esquire, and receive £10.10. The novelty of a defeated candidate, paying double the current price, expended by the successful one, or indeed paying anything, made a great sensation. Even my agent assured me that he could have secured my return for less money, for that the popular voice being in my favour, a trifling judicious expenditure would have turned the scale. I told Mr. Townsend that such payment would have been bribery, which would not accord with my character as a reformer of abuses, a declaration which seemed highly to amuse him. Notwithstanding the explanation that ten guineas was paid as a reward for having withstood the influence of bribery, the impression produced on the electoral mind by such unlooked-for liberality was simply this, that if I gave ten guineas for being beaten, my opponent had not paid half enough for being elected, a conclusion which, by a similar process of reasoning, was magnified into the conviction that each of his voters had been cheated out of five pounds ten. The result was what had been foreseen. My opponent, though successful, was regarded with anything but a favourable eye. I, though defeated, had suddenly become most popular. The effect at the next election must be reserved for its place in a future chapter. It was this election that first induced me to become a parliamentary reformer, or, as anyone holding popular opinions, was called in those days a radical, that is, a member of a political class holding views not half so extreme as those which form the parliamentary capital of reformers in the present day, and even less democratic than were the measures brought in during the last session of Parliament by a Tory government, whose predecessors consigned to jail all who, fifty years ago, ventured to express opinions conferring political rights on the people. It is strange that after having suffered more for my political faith than any man now living, I should have survived to see former radical yearnings become modern Tory doctrines. Stranger still, they should now form stepping-stones to place and power, instead of to the bar of a criminal court, where even the counsel defending those who were prosecuted for holding them became marked men. Still, it is something worth living for, even with the remembrance of my own bitter sufferings, for no greater offence than the advocacy of popular rights and the abolition of naval abuses. End of chapter 10 Recording by Timothy Ferguson Gold Coast, Australia.